Windsor, Windsor Ascot, Ascot Maidenhead, Maidenhead Bracknell, Bracknell Wokingham, Wokingham Henley, Henley Reading, Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The Voice River Radio of the Thames Valley Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be chatting to Jonathan Slack about the Marlow Literary Festival. And Mike Bryan about finding Offer's Queen in Cookham. Hello there. I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Good morning, Julian. How are you today? Well, I'm fine apart from a little sniffle, but otherwise fine. How are you, Heather? I'm very, very well, thank you. Good, good, good. Right, so every week on Turning Pages, we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy, from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. And in the words of the late great two Ronnies, we have a packed programme for you this week. And starting off with the news that there's going to be a new literary festival starting here in Marlow this month. And Heather's been talking to the organiser, Jonathan Slack, about the event. Mike Bryan will be discussing what best-selling author Bernard Cornwall and Cookham Abbey having Cookham have in common. <laughs> have in common? In common. Have, yeah, <laughs> that's difficult to say. and we're all at sea this week for our topic for the day and to start off the show we have been as usual scouring the newspapers to ferret out any interesting uh, book news for you great so let's start with that quick roundup of what book stories have been in the news recently Well, following the Queen's Platinum Jubilee last week, it was uh, a pleasure to read that three esteemed authors are to receive the Order of of the Companion of Honour, which is one of the country's most exclusive clubs. Now, it was founded in 1917 on the June the 4th by George V, and when he founded it, he limited to just 65 members. So that's how exclusive it is. And it's 65 members at any one time. So, uh, to put it bluntly... You have to wait till somebody um, either retires or, you know, mm. before you can join. Anyway, shoes, so, eh? <laughs> so the appointments um, are given to those who have made a long-standing contribution to either the arts, the sciences, medicine or government. Now, the three recipients this year are the novelist Sir Salman Rushdie, the illustrator and children's author and uh, an all-time favourite, Sir Quinton Blake, and the novelist Dame Marina Warner. Now, Rushdie, who's 74, is, as, as you will know, the book of Prize winner uh, of Midnight's Children. And um, Blake, who is at the grand age of 89, has written and illustrated a staggering number over 500 books and perhaps best known for his collaboration with um, Roald Dahl. And the novelist Dame Marina Warner, who's 75, is a historian, a mythographer, and a novelist. And her latest book is Inventory of a Life Mislaid, an Unreliable Memoir, which is published by Colin last year well done all three of them yes justly deserved 
So I've spotted a new book that I want to tell everybody about. So my favourite reverend, or rather ex-reverend, Richard Coles, who you might know from either fronting the communards back in the late 80s or presenting on the Saturday morning breakfast show on BBC Radio 4. Anyway, his first book, Murder Before Evensong, has just been published and it sounds great. It'll be perfect for fans of the Thursday Murder Club and it's a brilliant crime debut which sees the sleepy parish of Champton descend into unexpected chaos and setting canon Daniel Clement on a hunt for a murderer. So uh, canon Daniel Clement is a rector of Champton. He's been there for eight years living at the rectory alongside his widowed mother who is opinionated, fearless and ever so slightly annoying and and his two dash sons Cosma and Hilda. So when Daniel announces a plan to install a lavatory in church, which you'd think would be thumbs up for everybody, the parish is suddenly and unexpectedly divided as lines are drawn, long-buried secrets come dangerously close to destroying the apparent calm of the village. And then we have a death at the back of the church when someone's stabbed in the neck with a pair of secateurs. So Mm. as the police moves in and the bodies start piling up, Daniel is the only one who can try and keep this fractured community together and catch the killer. It sounds great. It really does, yes. Gosh, um, the teacups in Champton are rattling. <laughs> well, for, uh, my, uh, I want to give congratulations um, to uh, Geetan Jali Shri for winning this year's International Booker Prize for her uh, novel Tomb of Sand. Now, it was originally written in Hindi and published in India in 2018 and was translated into English by Daisy Rockwell and published here in Great Britain by Tilted Axis Press in 2021. And it has the additional distinction of being the first book in any Indian language, of which there are 23 official languages, to win the International Booker Prize for fiction that has been translated into English. Now, Tomb of Sand is about an elderly widow, now in her 80s, reflecting upon the time of partition in 1947 when British India was divided into two lands, India and Pakistan. She she slipped into depression at the death of her husband. However, she started to gain a new lease of life and is determined to fly in the face of convention, shocking members of her family in, 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 in doing so. Uh, now, uh, Tomb of Sand is available again from tomorrow, as it had been reprinted immediately uh, on the ass- announcement of the news that Tamishri had won the prize. Now, Tilted Axis Press, and this is very interesting and a great boon for our bookshops, does not sell its books through Amazon. And I, that is great news for all of our local independent bookshops. Absolutely. I thoroughly approve. Do you know why that is? Well, I, I don't actually know the official, but I, I hasn't been yes. I think it, it's basically because um, uh, the, the publisher wants to, to, to remain independent of, of um, the dominance of Amazon, and I would like to think to give independent booksellers a, a go. But it is very interesting because I was talking to um, some publishers who um, don't really like to sell through Amazon, but when I said, well, why do you do it? It's because their authors insist they should do it. So it's quite interesting. So obviously Tilted Access Press has decided that their author's best interests are served by the independent book trade. Yes, that is very Hurrah. interesting. Yes. And I think we have got to say, have got to mention, whilst uh, obviously everyone is free to choose whoever they want to buy their books from. Uh, mm. One of the reasons people buy from Amazon because it's sort of like next day delivery. But that's exactly the same in your local bookshop. Mostly yes. if you go to your local bookshop and order a book, um, their wholesaler will probably be able to deliver it the next day anyway. So there's no immediate benefit. 
No, but also the book might actually be in stock. So same day delivery exactly. in the local bookshop. Exactly. <laughs> and then you might find something Pick and else. connect. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> now, some of the most well-known lyrics by Bob Dylan are up for sale. Now, whilst the lyrics depict... Um, Fall from a the singer's fall from a stable rich lifestyle to lonely destruction, destitution, and scrounging a next meal. Bidders will need to be able to afford more than just a good meal to acquire these handwritten lyrics for like a Rolling Stone. It's estimated they can fetch one point three million dollars. Interestingly, I thought Like a Rolling Stone is statistically the most acclaimed song in history, according to review aggregator Acclaimed Music. And it was also named the greatest of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. But they might have been biased, of course. The manuscripts are written on parchment paper in 1965 and also feature edits and doodles in Dylan's own hand. Now, lyric sheets for another classic song, Mr. Tambourine Man, are also being sold with an estimate of $425,000. The auction house, Moments in Time, are also selling a later lyric sheet for the song Blowing in the Wind, written on St. Regis Hotel Stationery in 2011, which a new recording of this track is being um, recorded by Dylan and released in September uh, this year, 60 years after Dylan first wrote and recorded the song. Mm, interesting. Now, talking about um, literary interests up for auction, um, a diary containing uh, the harrowing account of the charge of the Light Brigade has been found um, some 168 years later. Ca- uh, Captain Michael Stocks described watching 600 men riding into the greatest trap that were ever made up at the Battle of Baclava in the Crimean War in 1854. Now, his family is due to sell the diary later this month, and this is particularly pertinent as this is the area that Ukraine is defending at the moment around Sebastopol on the Black Sea against Russia today. And just to remind you, half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the Valley of Death, rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said, into the Valley of Death, rode the 600. Yes, well done, Tennyson, who was poet laureate at the time when he wrote that uh, that poem. And finally, the largest collection of James Bond memorabilia yet assembled is being sold by antiquarian bookseller Peter Harrington, Harrington with an estimated value of three million pounds. Now, intriguingly, it includes an omnibus of the books inscribed to James Bond from Ian Fleming. So no, this isn't Ian Fleming sort of going mad and writing to his own creator creation. They were a gift to a Mr. James Bond who sent the author a New Year's card in 1963 complaining that his name had become onerous. Fleming sent the books as a small compensation for the amount of ragging you must have suffered. (laughs) (laughs) He also added the comforting note, so far as 1963 is concerned, you would probably be relieved to know that you stay alive. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I could imagine you'd want to be called Mr. James Bond. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then again, I suppose the people come over with it, asking sort of silly questions about his job and where he's been, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Might have got a bit tiresome after the, uh, after the, uh, 
uh, a while, I should think. <laughs> but um, anyway, to you listeners, thank you for listening to Turning Pages here on River Radio because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. Now, coming up, we'll be to- uh, taking you down to the sea, but list- literary festivals are spreading across the land. They're an excellent opportunity of discovering new authors, learning about new books, listening to your favourite authors, perhaps, and mingling with like-minded people who all enjoy a good old natter and a book. Now, the largest of them all, the Hay Festival, has just finished with over 75 events um, which uh, were uh, taking place over the two weeks of the festival. And we're really pleased to say the Thames Valley is no exception. We have just had the Cookham Arts Festival, which hosted many authors in their books, and the Henley Literary Festival is coming up in October with um, hot on its heels, the Clifton Literary Festival, which is going to be uh, on later in October. But before all that, there is a new kid on the block, and it's the Marlow Literary Festival, which is a brand new one starting up this year. Now, Heather was speaking to Jonathan Slack early in the week, who is one of the organisers of the end and of the event, and so we're going to hear a little bit about that now. Thank you so much indeed for joining me today. Before we start talking about the Marlow Literary Festival, which I know you're very much involved in, tell me a little bit about yourself first. My name is Jonathan Slack. I'm a Marlow resident of many, many years. I retired about 10 years ago and taken up many new interests, including painting, tree planting and writing. Excellent. So we're just going to talk about your writing at the moment. But obviously, I applaud you for your tree planting. (laughs) And I'm not commenting on about your painting. That's only because I've not seen it. So, So tell me about your writing. Have you had anything published yet? Are you still sort of waiting for that to happen? I can talk to you about our new magazine as one of the things that the group has just achieved. The group is called Marlow Writers. So it's been in existence with different names for about 10 years. Local people who are just like writing and meeting and sharing their work. So there at the moment, there are 12 of us. We meet once a month at the George and Dragon. So thanks very much to them for hosting us. And um, we choose a topic each month. We start with a blank page and write something and then share it in a supportive and inspiring way. It's because of the Marlow Writers Group that you came up with the idea of a literary festival. I did. I first of all want to mention one of our members, Bill, Bill Dunn, uh, who suggested we produce our own magazine. So he took on the task of bringing our work together, getting it into a 32-page A5 booklet and getting it printed. So our first edition, and you'll see the title, is called Slack. Now, yes, that is my surname. However, Bill's choice, he thought it represented the idea of grabbing a few moments of quiet time to sit down with a coffee and read anything, including our magazine. He also works with an app, which I hadn't heard of, called Slack, which apparently is an all-in-one communication app for deskless teams. So again, right. he chose it. To, it's about bringing people and teams and ideas together. So that's uh, now available, and we're going to sell it for local charities, including Marlow Refugee Action. 
Excellent. So where can you find the magazine? We've only just got it. It will be in local shops, including particularly Oxfam. One of our members is a volunteer in Oxfam and we hope to put it in other supportive local shops as well. So, Excellent. And yeah. so that, that's all your writings, your musings at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. That's a lovely idea of picking up mm. slack time, using it effectively. Yes, I've grown to like it. <laughs> Well, I've got to say, we applaud anything worth spending five minutes just to relax. And whether that's reading or writing your own jottings, then that's all totally approved by uh, turning pages. Brilliant. But then I thought with this great literary tradition of of Marlowe writers going back, you know, you've got Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe, you've got Thomas Love Peacock, you've got T.S. Eliot, Edgar Wallace, Robert Thorogood, more up-to-date, Mike Borton, Susanna Beard and Jeff Lambton are three current writers who will be joining us at this festival that I could talk about. And then we've also got Freya Sampson and Max Porter, who is really an international superstar at the moment. He's got very strong Marlowe connections. So He went to Borlay School, didn't he? He did, yes, yes. And he's um, hit the heady heights of an award winner, yes. And um, I, did invite him, I did invite him to our Marlowe Writers First Literary Festival, which is the main point. But unfortunately, he is at the Toulouse International Literary Festival, so he can't make it. But we have others. Yeah, I'm and, sure uh, the sun will be shining in Marlowe as well. Indeed, indeed, yes. So tell me about the festival. You've gathered together a select Collection of your members and yes. and authors. In fact, we've had Suzanne Beard on our program talking about Excellent. one of her psychological thrillers. So that's Indeed. very good. Yeah. Yes, we're looking forward to that. And Mike Borton, who is casual poet, I think he calls himself. The He's, casual uh, poet, absolutely. We <laughs> feature him regularly on the program. <laughs> yes. So and ourselves. So it'll be a mix of readings and interviews, and we're thoroughly looking forward to it. It's going to be new, inspiring. And I think we'll learn from it and um, enjoy it and then come back again another time. So it's on in Marlow on Sunday, the 26th of June, between two and five in the afternoon. Sunday, the 26th of June. And how do we go about getting tickets? Or The the venue is secret, (laughs) just to add intrigue. And that's because it's a private um, property and with fairly limited access. So we need to control it by ticket only admission. There are still some available, not many, but some available. And if your listeners who would like to come along to this in, initial event, then that's possible. Just email me. Okay. So my address, I'll say it, is Jonathan Slack. 26 at gmail.com so it's j-o-n-a-t-h-a-n s for sugar l-a-c-k 26 at gmail.com and if you can tell me uh, your name and obviously the email address then i can reply and send a ticket excellent i do know tickets um, are limited so if somebody is interested <laughs> then they do need to email you what are your plans for the future marlow literary events well, taking given the rich history of our marlow writers i was surprised that marlow has not had a literary festival before i think although- every <laughs> deserving town ought to have a literary festival and we know that there are some very good and long established ones in nearby locations but we think yes there is scope for something bigger uh, more broad and uh, with a range of writers but with a a marlow base for readers um, to come along and enjoy that experience so yes I think it's uh, going to be watch this space when this one is over 
And I know there are some very keen other individuals who'd like to get involved and take it forward. Excellent. Well, that's really good news. And I wish you all the best and hope the sun is shining. Yes, thank you very much. And just to remind you again, uh, if you if you uh, didn't have a pencil to hand, the Marlow Literary Festival is on Sunday, the 26th of June, in the afternoon between 2 and 5 o'clock. Uh, tickets are still available. And to get a ticket, just send an email to Jonathan. And his email address is jonathanslack26 at gmail.com. And Slack is S-L-A-C-K. The Voice. <laughs> Of the Thames Valley. River Radio. I think I like it. I think beat comes next on the list. This is Turning Pages on River Radio, your book programme. Thank you for listening. And if you've just joined us, well, we've missed you, but never fear. You can listen again to our whole show, uh, show on a podcast. And you get your podcast from whichever service you use. You just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcasts and listen whenever you like. And if you, um, and please do click the like button of our podcast, if, uh, which would be kind if you did, because it really does help. Now, River Radio has a range of great programmes to suit all tastes, um, from, of course, your favourite literary show, Talking Pages, to music, current affairs, theatre and talk shows, with new programmes joining all the time. Now, your weekly appointment with Turning Pages is every Wednesday, as you know, between 11am and 12 noon. And if you want a second helping, the show is repeated every Saturday afternoon between 2pm and 3pm. Now, this week, our theme is about the sea. But before we dive in, I've been chatting with local resident, author and publisher Mike Bryan to discuss how the best-selling author, Bernard Cornwell, is linked to Cookham. Thanks for stopping by. My pleasure, Heather. Nice to be with you. We were chatting about Bernard Cornwell and his links to Cookham. But first of all, Bernard Cornwell has a link to another author I'll be discussing later in the process, C.S. Forrester. And I know you're a fan of both authors. So tell me about that. Yes. So, as you know, I used to work for Penguin Books and I I must have been incredibly about 20 years after I'd worked there that I picked up a copy of... C.S. Forrester, Captain. I'd never read him before and it hadn't really occurred to me, but I just saw saw a copy on the shelf and thought, well, I'll, I'll read that. Within, I don't know, two weeks, I'd read all 11 of the C.S. Forrester hornblowers because they are so fantastic. They're real page turners. He has a, a really brilliant sense of plot and excitement and I had to read them all. And I do remember somebody say, about discovering Jane Austen and reading everything that she'd written and was so upset that there was only six books and that, you know, she'd complete reading Jane Austen. Well, I felt the same about Hornblower. I think that these fantastical Napoleonic Navy thrillers, really, I'd read them all in no time and, and that they were no more to read. But never fear, because Bernard Cornwell was around the corner. Indeed, Bernard Cornwell said that when he started writing books, he moved to the States with his American wife, couldn't get a job because he hadn't got a green card, so decided to write a book. And in his uh, way of finding out how to write a book, 
he did kind of what I did was to read through who he loved, but he went through each of the books to work out what C.S. Forrester was doing, how he was introducing characters, what sort of characters they were, were they good, were they bad, did you think they were good, but actually they turned out to be bad, did you think they were bad, turned out to be good. It was all the, the precision of how to create a plot and that's what Bernard Cornwell did in his own book. So, of course, Sharp, which, of course, we know Bernard Cornwell for, is effectively Captain Hornblower on land. So if you love Bernard Cornwell, you'd love C.S. Forrester. If you love C.S. Forrester, you'd love Bernard Cornwell. They're, they're, they're both fantastic and a, a lovely, thrilling read, a great read on holiday. And But there is that connection, that C.S. Forrester-Bernard Cornwell connection plot and brilliant plots i mean it's superbly well written he drags you high he drags you low and drags you back high again you kind of know what you're going to get but you're loving every 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 word that you read absolutely and i think that bernard cornwell has sort of used that same structure and excitement for the other books because he's written lots of different series hasn't he he's got that same sense yes, he of has. excitement I mean, and adventure in each of them Yes, yeah, so it's not just sharp. I mean, he's written quite a number of series, but the most recent, which has uh, a connection with Round Here, has a connection with almost everywhere in, in Britain, really, are his Last Kingdom series. They're, they're set in Saxon times through the reigns of Alfred the Great, Athel Fled of the Lady of Mercia, and of course Athelstan, the king that brought all the English kingdoms together and formed England as we know it today. And, and if people haven't read the books, they might have possibly seen it on television, because there is a television series called The Last Kingdom, isn't there? Yes, there is. So Netflix do The Last Kingdom on television and it is great to see they are really really good versions of the books and i can i can highly recommend them uh, you can uh, the books are fantastic though so i would recommend you actually to go out and buy the book but our protagonist in the last kingdom is utred son of utred the lord of babenberg which is up in northumberland but for a good period of the book he is effectively lord of the manor of cookham which is the local connection. And Cookham, of course, was a Saxon borough. It was created by Alfred the Great as a fortified town in order to defend Wessex from the incursions of the Vikings, the Danes and the Danelaw up above. So presumably um, Cookham was so chosen the, because it's the fording point of the Thames. Well, it was a it was a fording point of the Thames, and of course, in Roman times, it had a bridge across it. But it it is also liminal because the Thames was the border between Wessex and ah. Mercia. So, of course, lots of action could happen. And of course, the Danes did actually bring their boats up through up the Thames as far as Reading. So, so there were Viking incursions. Now, I have just been, I've just volunteered to join the Friends of Cookamambi as a trustee, which is very exciting, brings a, a nice little connection in. Because I don't know if you know, but last year in Cookham, there were excavations, archaeological digs near the church to discover where the Saxon monastery, the Saxon Abbey of Cookham, it was a Saxon town and it did have a Saxon Abbey and it's quite a famous abbey because the wife of Offa, who was the king of Mercia, so that's uh, 
office dyke that we know yes. of. Yes. Yes. So, so he built this great ridge from North Wales to South Wales to divide Mercia from Wales, and which, of course, we know t- today as Offa's dying. So that's, that's the offer. But he died, and when he died, his wife moved to the Abbey Cookham, where she spent um, the rest of her days. And, and she was very special. I mean, she had coins minted with her head on them. So she was, in Saxon times, she was a very, very important person. Did she reign as queen? Well, she was certainly queen consort. She didn't reign as a queen in herself, but together with Offa, she was very important and important enough to have money minted in in her name, which is very significant. She must have been a powerful lady, as Ethelfled would be later on as Lady of the Mercy. I'm aware of the church in Cookham, Holy Trinity, down by the river. Is the abbey linked in with that church? We assume it is, and and the initial digs last year have suggested that the monastic community is in this area. So so there is more work to be done, and there are going to be digs over the next three years, being run by Gabor Thomas of Reading University. And very excitingly, I think, it's going to be on Digging for Britain. You know that programme with Roberts, where they talk about all the amazing digs of the year. Well, Cookham Abbey will be part of that this year. So that's very, very exciting. The digs, the digs start in August. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, they, they, it goes throughout August, from August the first through to the end of August. Uh, the, the, the dig this year is going to happen. Can members of the public get involved? Well, that's exciting. So they can come and see. But what we'd love to do is get people to become friends of Cookham Abbey. And we're having a launch party on the twenty third of June. It's going to be at Pinder Hall in Cookham. And it's between six and seven o'clock. Come along and have a drink with us. That would be uh, a wonderful thing to do. And we can tell you all about it. And hopefully, whether you're in Cookham, Marlow, Maidenhead, or anywhere nearby, you'd love to become a friend of Cookham Abbey and help support the archaeological works that are going to be going on. So one of the great benefits of being a friend is that we will have special events and there will be a special talk by Gabor Thomas about the dig at various phases through the dig in in August. So it will be great becoming a friend of Cookham Abbey and I urge everybody to do so. It's very exciting that Alice Roberts will be coming along because that Digging for Britain programme is really interesting and they find some amazing things. So obviously Gabor Thomas is expecting good things from from this dig. Last year they found lots of evidence of the monastic community uh, and of course, fingers crossed, we will find something very spectacular this year. But we can't promise that. Fingers crossed indeed. Mike, fantastic. So how do the launch party, which is in Cookham, on the 23rd of June at Pinder Hall between 6 and 7. And in order to get there, do we need to buy a ticket? Do we need to contact anybody? No, you don't need to buy a ticket. It would be lovely if you could register, and probably the easiest way that I can do this over the radio is if you could email me at mikeforestlodge at gmail.com. I'll repeat that. That's mikeforestlodge, that's all one word, at gmail.com, and let me know if you're coming or not. But it doesn't matter. You don't have to let us know. You'll be more than welcome to join us at Pinder Hall, 6 o'clock on June the 23rd. That would be lovely. We'd love to meet you. That sounds fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Heather. 
Right, so that sounds fantastic. So if you want to be a friend of Cookham Abbey, do go along to the launch meeting. And if you just want to find out more about Saxon um, history in the local area, why don't you just buy The Last Kingdom by Bernard Cornwall? It's a right rollicking read. But also as a little tip, I mean, if you do go to that meeting, you can also type, uh, tap into Mike because he'll actually tell you a bit about Saxon Britain as well. You can't stop him. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> We're looking at the sea today as our the theme sea, the of sea. the week. Absolutely. And I think there's rather something inspiring about the sea, don't you? I do, yes, because I think it, 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 a number of um, ways to look at it. I mean, it's, it's certainly the adventure, you know. So, for example, if you, you know, when you, uh, I went on my first uh, cross channel, uh, channel um, ferry boat going off to catch a train to go to Austria as a student, yes. uh, and then when you're either, you know, on a, a, a nice beach holiday and you've got the sound of the sea, just. There's so many lovely elements to it. And then, of course, there's the ferocious sea, the dramatic sea. When, you, you know, when you're watching the film The Cruel Sea, you know, how the power in that water. It's just so exciting. Yes, storm watching. Yes. Something like that. Yes. Yes, I've got to say, it's, uh, it is hypnotic. Mm. Um, but also very relaxing in a very strange way, it, depending it, on what it's like. It's, it, it is. I, I agree with you. And I was, when I used to go to, um, to um, Cyprus on business, I used to stay in a hotel um, on the beach. And I always you pay extra um to to have a a, um, a sea view room oh, yes. and i would always leave i would always leave the um the um balcony uh, doors open at night and it was lovely to wake up in the yes. morning because it was always very quiet because you were literally on the beach and it was that as the water just came in slowly onto the shore it was absolutely wonderful yes absolutely so we had to choose books associated with the sea and I my first choice is going to be the Hornblower series by C.S. Forrester mm-hmm. we just talking about that with Mike earlier on and the reason I was inspired to choose that is because I have just stayed by the seaside in a Martello Tower now Martello Towers of course were built in the Napoleonic era mm. and Hornblower is set in the Napoleonic era so I could I could feel some of their sort of their history and we we're right on the sea in Oldborough very beautiful right out on this spit so it's quite isolated and then it was the wind that was really amazing so you could hear the wind whistling round and then the sea gushing into the uh into the uh, into the side of the martello tower and it sounded as though the weather outside was going to be horrendous and of course when you stepped outside and got passed over the drawbridge and onto the land it was absolutely beautiful but just on our little bit it sounded absolutely <laughs> horrendous but that inspired me to choose the hornblower series now of course hornblower is a fictional officer in the british royal navy during the napoleonic wars so you're talking sort of round about uh, early 1800s and he's a protagonist for a whole series of novels and stories by C.S. Forrester, um, which late, later became the subject of films, radio and television. And in fact, there's even a biography of, um, of Hornblower by C. Northcott Parkinson called The True Story of Horatio Hornblower. But let's just start to the, let's just listen to the start of his adventures when he enters his ship as a young midshipman for the very first time. Mr. Midshipman Hornblower, The Even Chance. 
A January gale was roaring up the channel, blustering loudly and bearing in its bosom rain squalls whose big drops rattled loudly on the tarpaulin clothing of those among the officers and men whose duties kept them on deck. So hard and so long had the gale blown that even in the sheltered waters of Spithead the battleship moved uneasily at her anchors, pitching a little in the choppy seas and snubbing herself against the tautened cables with unexpected jerks. A shore boat was on its way out to her, propelled by oars in the hands of two sturdy women. It danced madly on the steep little waves, and now and then putting its nose into one and sending a sheet of spray flying aft. The oarswoman in the bow knew her business, and with rapid glances over her shoulders not only kept the boat in its course, but turned the bows into the worst of the waves to keep it from capsizing. It slowly drew up along the starboard side of the Justinian, and as it approached the main chains, the midshipman of the watch hailed it. Aye, aye, came back the answering hail from the lusty lungs of the woman at the stroke oar. By the curious and age-old convention of the navy, the reply meant that the boat had an officer on board, presumably the huddled figure in the stern sheets looking more like a heap of trash with a boat cloak thrown over it. That was as much as Mr. Mars as the lieutenant of the watch could see. He was sheltering as best he could in the lee of the mizzenmast bits, and in obedience to the order of the midshipman of the watch, the boat drew up towards the main chains and passed out of his sight. There was a long delay. Apparently the officer had some difficulty in getting up the ship's side. At last the boat reappeared in Master's field of vision. The women had shoved off and were setting a scrap of lug sail under which the boat, now without its passengers, went swooping back towards Portsmouth, leaping on the waves like a steeplechaser. As it departed, Mr. Masters became aware of the near approach of someone along the quarter-deck. It was the new arrival under the escort of the midshipman of the watch, who, after pointing Masters out, retired to the main chains again. Mr. Masters had served in the Navy until his hair was white. He was lucky to have received his commission as lieutenant, and he had long known that he would never receive one as captain. But the knowledge had not greatly embittered him, and he diverted his mind by the study of his fellow men. So he looked with attention at the approaching figure. It was that of a skinny young man only just leaving boyhood behind, something above middle height, with feet whose adolescent proportions to his size were accentuated by the thinness of his legs and his big half-boots. His gawkiness called attention to his hands and elbows. The newcomer was dressed in a badly fitting uniform, which was soaked right through by the spray. A skinny neck stuck out of the high stock, and above the neck was a white, bony face. A white face was a rarity on the deck of a ship of war, whose crew soon tanned to a deep mahogany. But this face was not merely white. In the hollow cheeks there was a faint shade of green. Apparently the newcomer had experienced seasickness on his passage out in the shore boat. Set in the white face were a pair of dark eyes, which by contrast looked like holes cut in a sheet of paper. Masters noted, with a slight stirring of interest, that the eyes, despite their owner's seasickness, was looking about keenly, taking in what were obviously new sights. There was a curiosity and interest there which could not be repressed, and which continued to function notwithstanding either seasickness or shyness, and Mr. Masters surmised, in this far-fetched fashion, that this boy had a vein of caution or foresight in his temperament, and was already studying his new surroundings with a view to being prepared for his next experiences.' 
So might Daniel have looked about him at the lions when he first entered their den. The dark eyes met Master's and the gawky figure came to a halt, raising a hand self-consciously to the brim of his dripping hat. His mouth opened and tried to say something, but closed again without achieving its object, as shyness overcame him. But then the newcomer nerved himself afresh and forced himself to say the former words he had been coached to utter. "'Come aboard, sir.' "'Your name?' asked Masters, after waiting for it for a moment. "'Horatio Hornblower, sir. Midshipman,' stuttered the boy." Ah, oh. so uh, in Napoleonic Wars, you were about 11 or 12. when you Greek, really? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Which is tiny. You think of sort of like somebody, instead of going up to um, senior school, you mm. actually go and serve for what could be sort of five, seven years away from your parents in this brutal atmosphere of uh, a warship. So anyway, poor Horatio Hornblow starts his career in this rather unpromising way and without any influential friends, but he advances through hard work, honesty and bravery. Of course he does. And what's great, I think, about the books is apart from how exciting they are, I mean, just from that very first, uh, maybe that was the first couple of pages, but it really gets you into the story. You Mm. really want to know what's going to happen to him, don't you? And there are many parallels between Hornblow and real Navy officers of the period. So you've got people like sort of Horatio Nelson and George Coburn and Lord Cochrane, Sir Edward Pellew, really famous um, sailors. And they all did sort of exciting, daring do's. And these have been picked up and sort of put in the story for uh, Hornblower to uh, to commit. So all very exciting. And if you did want to sort of like read the Royal Navy um, official reports, you'll find that there's lots of fictional overlap here. Now, Horatio was inspired by William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Of course it was. And also the link with Nelson. And the surname Hornblower was a a favourite friend of Foster's and Hollywood producer Arthur Hornblower. Now, Foster's original inspiration was was really an old copy of the Naval Chronicle that described the effective dates of the Treaty of Ghent. Now, it was possible in those days when there were no phones or no way of communicating with ships that actually two countries could be at war with one another. They could actually have peace and peace could have been obtained months and months before actually on another side of the world you'd actually find out about it. So you'd find that these ships would be... um, be, you know, in war with another, uh, with the enemy ship, when actually peace had been declared, which I just think is amazing. So, so for example, so so Britain could have um, sort of um, had uh, agreed peace with with uh, Holland, but a Dutch boat and the British boat were still scrapping Absolutely. halfway across the world. Right? Absolutely, because you're on the other side of the world. Yes, and you're you're seeing an enemy ship, and you don't yes. you don't know this could happen. So anyway, there are twelve books in the series, and the first book written has home, has Homeblower with a fairly high rank, um, but demand for more stories led C.S. Foresters to go back right to the beginning and start and fill in Hornbower's life story. And so, of course, he wrote novels detailing his rise from the wreck of midshipmen right up to an admiral. And his last completed novel was published in 1962. So I think it's fantastic. And interestingly, C.S. Forrester is also credited with inspiring Roald Dahl to meet. They met in the States in 
1942. And according to Dahl's autobiographer, Lucky Break, Foster, uh, Forrester asked him about experiences as a fighter pilot. And this prompted Roald Dahl to write his very first story, A Piece of Cake. Mm-hmm. And we've also talked about how C.S. Forrester is also credited with being the inspiration behind Bernard Cornwell. And I, I would like to say that any Sharp fans out there, Sharp is far less moral than Hornblower. <laughs> but equally exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. But yeah, so, 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 so Sharp, is, Sharp is the Hornblower of, um, um, of, land. of, of the land. Yes, right. Right. in yeah, the yeah. army. Absolutely, yes. yeah. Very Mind you, I, I suppose the thing is that um, Sharp, because he's slightly um, um, less moral, is the benefit of probably having been written later by Mr. Cornwell. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, quite right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, now, my choice of novel um, about the sea is one that became, on publication in 1903, a a great hit with reading, reading public. Um, moreover, it's regarded as possibly being one of the first spy novels that established a formula that included a great deal of verifiable detail, which in turn gave authenticity to the story. So, for example, the details would include accurate descriptions of towns featured in, in this particular story and of the various um, islands that make up the Frisian landscape. In fact, the di- this same device was employed with equal success um, years later by other spy novelists, including John Buchan, Ian Fleming, and, of course, the great John le Carre. Now, uh, you, 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 some of you might intrigue, but the novel that I'm, I'm um, talking about is The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers. Fantastic book. Yeah, really, it's it is one of my um, one of my favourites. I must admit. Now, Erskine Childers was an accomplished sailor um, in his own right, and he toured the Frisian Islands, Northern Sea, and the Baltic in eighteen ninety five with his brother Henry. And it was on that trip um, that he was inspired to write the novel. Now, Childers, interestingly, was concerned that in the event of war, Britain's eastern flank, basically the fens and the wash of East Anglia, were exposed and not at all well protected because the main naval bases were focused on the southern coast. Now, more interestingly, Childers' concern, which proved to be prescient, were at odds with the established thinking, which was that France was the traditional enemy, not Germany, and Germany was the focus of Childers' concern. Now, this is really interesting as well. After the publication of The Riddle of the Sands, the government sat up and took note, and it is said that that um, Childers' novel was the reason why the naval base at Recife was established in 1909, six years after publication. that's interesting, isn't Isn't it? Isn't it just? That's how influential. Well, it just shows the importance of novels. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, I mean, Childers, when he, when he started right, he, he, he was the, the purpose, though it's a fantastic story, a spy story. I mean, it was his purpose. In many ways, he was a bit like um, a, 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 a Churchill in advance. He was, he was trying to alert the government to potential danger, which the government couldn't yes. see because yeah. they, were, they were concentrating on France as, as yeah. the traditional They were too close, too close to the problem. Exactly, yes. Now, so as you say, as, as you probably worked out now um, and you've heard because the novel is set in the Frisian Islands and the two principal characters are Carruthers, who's a minor official in the Foreign Office, and his acquaintance Davis, who invites uh, Carruthers to join him on a yachting holiday in the Baltic. Um, Carruthers has, you know, is a bit of a loose end, so he says he's going. So on arrival at Flensburg, <laughs> Carruthers is somewhat disappointed to see this rather 
tiny, small, a small sailing boat, rather than this rather grand crude yacht, which was what he was expecting to be ferried around in on he his was, yacht holiday. He was expecting an oligarch's yacht, was he? Yeah, basically, yes, a boat in gym palace. And what he got was a workaday uh, sailing boat. Anyway, so the, the pair set out for the Frisian Islands off the coast of northern Germany. And along the way, Carruthers masters how to sail the small boat to match Davis's excellent uh, maritime skills, which were going to be greatly needed later on. Now, Davis reveals to Carruthers that he suspects the Germans are undertaking something sinister within the islands because a short while before he came to join Davis, um, rather, um, yes, to Davis, um, Davis had had a near-fatal collision with a German yacht owned by a mysterious German businessman by the name of Dolman, whom Davis suspects as being, in fact, an expatriate Englishman. Now, the pair spend a lot of time exploring the shallow tidal waters of the of the Frisian Islands, keeping an eye on a mysterious, supposedly secret um, treasure recovery project, which involves Dolman, until chased off by a German Navy patrol boat, the Blitz, whose commander, von Brunning, though charming and affable, makes veiled threats. Now, this is really uh, probably about the, 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 the first quarter or first third of the big, uh, of the book. So it's at the beginning. So you really must read The Riddle of the Sands if you happen to discover who exactly is Dolman and what uh, of his fate and how Davis's relationship with Dolman's daughter Clara develops. But above all, what are the true reasons for the German naval activity in the Frisian Islands and why did the Kaiser make a visit? And to what purpose will the countless number of barges be used for? Now, The Riddle of the Sands, I think, is a very, very atmospheric book um, with the descriptions of, of, of the islands and the sandbanks and everything else and, and the whole desolate Frisian landscape. And it's it captured perfectly, as indeed it was similarly captured perfectly in the excellent 1979 film with Michael York playing Carruthers, Simon McCorkendale as Davis and Jenny Agatha as Clara. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when The Riddle of the Sands was published in 1903, it became an instant bestseller. And it has the distinction of being continuously in print to this day. Not once in, mm. has that ever gone out of print. Now, having written a bestseller and generally lionised by the British public, you may be surprised to learn what happened to Erskine Childers. Okay, what happened? Well, it's really, it doesn't end well, unfortunately. Um, Childers was born into a well-to-do Anglo-Irish uh, family in Mayfair in 1870 um, with an estate in Ireland on his mother's side. His father was an Oriental scholar and translator who came from an ecclesiastical family. So all Childers, very fine all and... Very fine, yes, um, upper middle class yeah. family and... Um, ingrained in in society british yeah. society and, and empire he was educated at helbury um, helbury college and went on to trinity cambridge he then went to serve in the army and served in the boer war and the first world war and won the distinguished um service cross along the way fabulous now, absolutely when he came back from the war he became a civil servant and then became a prospective parliamentary candidate for the, uh, the liberal party however this child of empire's view started to change and he became a keen advocate of Irish independence. And this was, sadly, his undoing. 
Because along the way, the convoluted path of Irish politics at the time, from the talk of home rule to the Easter uprising to the Civil War, Erskine Childers became involved, heavily involved. And during the Civil War, Childers was said to have been the man behind the propaganda for the Republican movement, and as, and as a result was hunted by the National Army. Now, after the death of Michael Collins, um, who was uh, a member of the um, uh, Free State Government and also the head of the National Army, he was ambushed and killed. And the Free State authorities were out for retribution. And the Doyle introduced martial law in um, 1922 and in its provision made the carrying of unlicensed firearms a capital offence. Now, Erskine Childers was um, uh, arrested at his family home. He was preparing to go uh, to meet Eamon de Valera, and he was arrested on the 10th of November 1922 for the possession of an unlicensed firearm given to him, ironically, by Michael Collins. And this is it. He was tried at a military court, found guilty, and executed by a firing squad on the 24th of November 1922. Oh, dear me. Yeah. Politics. And when I first found that out years ago, I mean, that really shocked me because mm. I thought, you know, this is a, a famous author. This was a man of the establishment. And, and that was it. And it was because of that gun. Yes. Thank goodness we don't have corporal punishment anymore mm. in Britain. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, a chilling story, but a great book. A great book, a fantastic book. And it's all about the sea. It's all about the water. It's all yeah. about sailing. It's really, it's got everything. Spies the lot. Yeah. So I've got one last one that I just oh, yes. wanted to just wedge in slightly here, which is to do with the sea. And it's to do with lighthouses, Ooh, which yes. of course save so many ships around. Mm. And the one I want to book, or the one I want to recommend to you all, is The Lighthouse Stevenson's by Bella Bathurst. And this tells the extraordinary story of how four generations of Robert Louis Stevenson's family, you know, Robbie Louis Stevenson, the author, his family designed and built the 97 manned lighthouses that speckled the Scottish coast. Gosh. And when it was, uh, when it was published, Bathurst won a Somerset Morn Award for this book. And now this amazing family, the Stevenson family, built harbours, canals, railways, street lighting systems and numerous inventions to optics, engineering and architecture. They are amazing. But uh, out of stubborn altruistic pride, they never took a patent out on any of their inventions. Right. So I think that's good, though. Well, yes, yes. It was what what nowadays is called open sourcing, I suppose. (laughs) So you can't fail... If you're interested in the sea or in Scotland, you can't fail just to be swept up in the narrative of this book with loads of photographs, prints and drawings. You've got Sir Walter Scott, Michael Faraday, Daniel Defoe stalking through the pages. And uh, Bathurst unveils how the Lighthouse Stevenson's they battle, they accomplish, they frustrate and personal tragedies against a backdrop of the Scottish Enlightenment, which is Mm. always a really interesting period. Um, The advent of British naval supremacy, the Crimean War, the destruction of Highland society, and also the uneasy marriage of Scotland and England. And she also devotes a marvellous, wistful chapter to the lost art of lighthouse keeping. So all of our lighthouses now are automated. So computers having replaced keepers. Anyway, I'm going to read you a little bit about this book. 
200 years ago, when the first lights were built around the Scottish coast, no one talked much of security. The first beacons for mariners were either coal fires or high coastal towers in which candles burned through the night. Only a few of these fires were ever constructed in Scotland, since they consumed fuel at a voracious pace and were usually extinguished by bad weather. Thus, by the mid-18th century, the Scottish coast had become notorious for shipwrecks. In 1799, 70 vessels were lost in the Firth of Tay alone. Along with physical dangers, there were also the human ones. Bands of wreckers would lie in wait for beached ships, hoping for chances of loot. Something, it was becoming obvious, would have to be done. Those engineers who did come forward were more like pioneers than bureaucrats. To place a building on a rock in the Atlantic Ocean was, after all, a formidable endeavour. The pressure of wind, wave, tide and weather on a lighthouse were exceptional. No other building, not even a harbour, had to have quite the same mixture of tenacity and flexibility as the sea towers did. Any construction in mid-ocean had to be capable of resisting waves which, when roused, could hurl several hundred tonnes of water at anything in their way. Every one of the rock lighthouses in Scotland was built with stone walls at least nine feet thick at the base. Anything less, and they would not have lasted the first gale of winter. To build something under such pressures, at a time when the only materials available were stone, wood, glass and metal, was nothing short of miraculous. There was no concrete, or cranes, or hydraulic lifting equipment. There were no helicopters or pneumatic drills. Dynamite was a new and fickle builder's tool to be treated with extreme caution. Mortar was strong but unpredictable, requiring expert mixing and split-second timing. Haulage, in many cases, was provided by horses, who did not take kindly to precipitous cliffs and needed as much tending as any of the workmen. Equipment and materials were brought by sailboat, which ran exactly the same risks as any other ship. As the early engineers discovered, building 130-foot pillars in the middle of a hostile ocean required skills and tools that had not yet been invented. As often as not, they had to make it up as they went along. So Robert Louis Stevenson, the fourth generation, obviously used his lighthouse building uh, experiences into Treasure Island and Kidnap. And of course, Mm. the rest is literary history, isn't it? Yes. Gosh, I mean that—that's quite something. Well, well, now to 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 give a, a bit of a link. Next week we're going to be diving into the uh, uh, this literary history uh, for the action on the waves, and and uh, we're going to um, have a Treasure Island um, by Robert Louis Stevenson, which is consistently topping the favourites list um, with its tales of brigands and buccaneers, and it certainly makes takes up the pot of gold. Now, to make sure, please do pop a note in your diary to remind you to listen to Turning. Page every week but especially next week as we have the treat for you we're going to have the audiobook reading of treasure island courtesy of our friends at baker street press who have recorded the retelling of treasure island and have allowed us to play it for you so books we've been recommending today are murder before evensong by richard coles published by orion uh, Tomb of Sand by uh, Gitanjali Shri, by, uh, published by Tilted Axis Press. Last Kingdom by Bernard Cornwell, published by HarperCollins. 
Mr. Midshipman Hornblower and any of the Hornblower series by C.S. Forrester, published by Penguin. Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers, published by Seawolf Press. The Lighthouse Stevensons by Bella Barthurst, published by HarperCollins. And the two key pieces of information on the programme are the Marlowe Literary Festival on the afternoon of Sunday the 26th of June. To get a ticket, send an email to jonathanslack26 at gmail.com. And Friends of Cookham Abbey, if you're interested in joining, you can join a celebratory launch event on Monday the 27th of June at Pinder Hall. And if you're interested, just register at mikeforestlodge at gmail.com. So thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio today. Do tell your friends. And if you missed any of it, you can catch up on our podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. There can be only one. One that's made entirely out of 